We also will look into the contemporary passage or the story of this in Second Chronicles. We'll just be referencing it, even though that's not part of the assigned text, but it takes up the same exact story what we're going to be looking at. And as was mentioned, we're going to be continuing our look into Second Kings. And in particular, we're going to be looking at Solomon. So let's just uh, pray one more time and then we'll make some introductory thoughts. Our Father, we just ask you to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Lord Jesus' name, do pray. Amen. Amen. So we come to now in Israel's history, the third king. And really, as you go progressively down, starting with Saul, there's much, you would say, much written about David. David takes up a lot of the history as far as in, in, in first, well, starting in first Samuel, right? Second Samuel, first king, um, and then on throughout he's mentioned. Uh, much of his life is recorded, especially before he was king. Much of it is before he was king. And in, intertwined with that was Saul. He was the reigning king then. But the next one would be, uh, would be Solomon. And I know this is a simple breakdown if you look at his life. Well, as was mentioned, uh, last week, but much is, is given. We don't know anything about his childhood as David was, was started recording the Bible when he was a small boy. Remember David and Goliath and in the field as he was a little shepherd. But Solomon, we take up Solomon when he's already king. There's not anything said before. And then he comes into the scene. He takes up and he um, cleans up some things from what David asked him to do. And then really it turns to what the Lord gave him. Then you have the building of the temple and then you have what Solomon's downfall really and what um, what did him in, as it were, at the end. And really, if you go down through their line, there's not much else said about the other kings. A few chapters here and there. Sometimes you get to Hezekiah, Josiah, and there's a lot said about them because it was a strong uh, a time of revival. And, you know, the kings were going in a certain direction and there'd be a, another king that would change the direction to go back and seek out the Lord. And there'd be some chapters given to him. But Solomon, there is many here, at least 11 chapters in this uh, in this book of First Kings. And also, if, as I said, the contemporary is, is Chronicles, Chronicles one and two. Chronicles primarily deals with Judah. And that and that line. So if you go through Chronicles, there's going to be different. While it is the same story, it's a different angle, similar to the gospel. Right. We have four different accounts of the gospel It's the same. It's the same person that they're observing the Lord Jesus Christ, but from different angles. And sometimes they're, they give you more details and Chronicles does, too. And that's why we're going to be looking into Second Chronicles a little bit. So here we are at Solomon. Now, last week there was an outline, I think, that was good that we'll look uh, we'll use the second point was the wealth and wisdom. And that's what we're going to be taking up about Solomon. You know, there's also um, when you think of Solomon, I know when I was uh, a little bit younger back in camp, I remember, man, this guy, he had it all. You know, he <laughs> many wives. I mean, anything you can think of and that you would aspire to as far as like, well, if I only had that. Or if I had a little bit more of this, then I would be happy. Well, you, this guy had everything. If you, would, if you go down and read through it, I mean, 
it's it's obscene when you think about the numbers of at least of his relationships that he had. Not only it only it doesn't really tell us the the figures amount, but that the fact that Jerusalem and Israel became the center point of that known world where all commerce and practically uh, economic th- uh, traffic just came out through them. I mean, can you imagine the wealth that this guy had? And he's the same person that wrote something in one of his writings that is recorded in Scripture that he says it's all empty. You know, I, I was just um, not too long ago, there was this um, there's a lottery, right? And uh, the the winnings was some absurd amount, right, in the billions. But I remember uh, some of our co-workers there, they were pooling together and, you know, I don't know what they thought, you know, whether it was they were going to win. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's wrong to actually play that. But what is the Bible does warn against is the desire for that, right, and to get rich or to to go after it. It's like chasing wind. And really, it says the Bible says describes that kind of behavior as being pierced through with many pangs. It's literally like you're, you're, you're piercing yourself because chasing after this wealth and and earthly possessions. But Solomon was at that was at the peak, as it were. And he says it's vanity of vanities. It's all empty. And what is essentially is he saying? Because you look at the people that actually have everything. And you wonder, why do they still have the same problems than I do? It, it expe- exponentially more. Because they get to that point, and, they're, and it's, they just find out, it's not just that it's empty, you know, it, there's something there. When you look at money, look at possessions, it's a physical thing. But it makes them feel empty. They are empty inside. And, and it's funny, the people down below, you know, reaching out to go get that, they're wondering, they, I want to be just like that person. But the people that are up there saying, man, you don't want any of this. You know, I still feel the same way. It didn't do anything for me. And that's what Solomon, Solomon's life, um, due to, you know, that the Lord blessed him with an incredible amount of, of, of riches. And, but he is one of the writers that gives us insight. And really, God knew what he was doing. Um, he wrote many uh, many um, proverbs, many psalms. Uh, more is given to David, but Solomon says right, uh, upwards to three thousand. Right? It says in other places. But here we are in chapter three, reading about this man Solomon, and we're going to try to just go through it and as much as we can get in the in the time allotted, and we'll we'll take a look at his life. So Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he finished the building until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and he walled around Jerusalem the, and we'll just stop there so the first thing that we read about Solomon is really not the first act remember David gave him particular instructions there were two people that he needed to attend to one being Joab and the other one being Shimei both people that David uh, Joab was the commander of David's army, but um, anything you read about Joab, he he essentially was a murderer, right? He he killed at least two people that we know of in cold blood. And David says, you know, you're a wise person. Bring back on him what is deserved. And chapter two takes up that, that Solomon deals with Joab. He also deals with Abiathar, which is very interesting. He was a person that also was in rebellion. Remember at the beginning of Kings, 
uh, there was a son of David while David was an old man, Adonijah, and he took up David's old um, guard, as it was, Joab, the priest, Abiathar, and he said, follow me, I'm going to be king. And he did this without David's command, without David's wishes, and these people followed after him, essentially rebellion, because Solomon was going to be king. Abiathar is very interesting because he's of the house of Eli, and that was a prophecy fulfilled that he was going to be removed from priest and the priesthood. But here Solomon, his first one of his beginning acts is to make a marriage alliance. Now, this is very interesting as you read this. It's very significant. It comes up later in his life. But you think about why would he end up doing this? You think of the the monarchies in the Middle Ages. Um, it might be a little different why they did it. They thought that they were a gift from God, right? The monarchy has fallen on my shoulders. And what they would do is they would marry, not just inside the royal line of their own household, but they would look into other royal lines in other countries. So you have the king, say, of France or the daughter of France marrying somebody from Portugal. And really what they were doing was trying to preserve the royal line. So if anybody came after them and said, hey, listen, this person's not royal, you know, you wouldn't go out and go marry a commoner. That wouldn't be called for. So they would marry within the royal line. I don't think this is it because Solomon had many wives and even David did, and they weren't of royal blood. I think this is more of an economic alliance that he would then look into later because Solomon then would take some of the product of Egypt and then move it up north to the kings of the Hittites. Or it was something to keep peace around his, his southern border but it doesn't really say, but why it is significant, and we don't talk too much of this because this will be somebody else's subject matter. It says this. It says that in verse 3, we're about to read that Solomon loved the Lord. The next thing that we read about Solomon loving something, it says foreign women. And that's the beginning of his downfall. So the first person that it says that Solomon loved after it says foreign women was the daughter of Pharaoh. So in any case, the what is true is that God had commanded his people not to intermarry. Why? Why was, why was he warning them of that? Because of their practices and who they worship. He says, if you're going to go out and intermarry with them, you're going to cross what you feel and your convictions are, and you're going to be pulled towards their gods. And that even happened to Solomon, one of the wisest men. Uh, one of not, he's not the wisest person. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth, but he's one of the wisest, ended up falling down. Um, into that later in his life. He, so here we are. He, he builds his house. He goes out and, and establishes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter, with Pharaoh, through Pharaoh's daughter. And it says this in chapter, uh, in verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places. However, there was no house yet built for the name of the Lord. Now, this is also interesting because if you remember, we were just talking about this morning, the tabernacle, God takes up pretty much from uh, a part of Exodus up until Deuteronomy is the people wandering, his people wandering around the wilderness. Well, what is one of the main themes in there? Besides, you got the Ten Commandments, you got the ceremonial law, but it's the construction and the design of the tabernacle. But, you know, once they enter in the land, you don't really you have to really dig around to see what actually happened to it. You know, it was in shallow for a little bit. And then and then here it says that the people were still sacrificing at high places. Well, what is a high place? Uh, there's a lot of terms for high places. And what it is, what I can find, is just something that they designated as a holy site. 
There's holy sites and high places in other religions around the world, but this is what they designated. There was a high place here in Gibeon. And what happened was, remember in the time of Eli and Samuel, well, Eli, uh, Eli's sons decided, well, they're losing the battle. Well, we need to do something to, to tip the, the scales in our favor. Now, of course, these two were wicked sons. Well, they decided, well, let me go grab the ark. That's a symbol of God's power, and we're going to take that into battle. And at the beginning, you're like, wow, this is going to get results because the people were were cheering so loudly that the enemy heard this. They say, well, God is coming to the camp. But they ended up falling. And the result of that is the ark got taken. And through different plagues and, and different turmoils that the, the, the Philistines experienced through God's hand, they could not deny this was God's hand. They sent that thing back. They said, get this away from us. And it ended up coming to a city and then resting the people of Kirah Jerim took it and put it in Adonijah's house and it stayed there. You don't really read any of it in Saul's time. Saul reigned what, 40 years? You don't hear any any words about the ark or anything like that, but the ark ended up being separated from the tabernacle. So you have the ark now at this time because David ends up going and gets it out of Adonijah's house. He brings it to Jerusalem, but the rest of the furniture the altar is in Gibeon. So it's been separated. And it says this. Why did they do this? Well, because of that fact that it was separated. But there was no central place. It says no house. Now, of course, this is probably written after the fact that it was it was built. But the house of the Lord was not constructed yet. But it also was the tabernacle wasn't fully um, put together. Because remember, there was the different compartments and the ark was in the innermost place. But the altar and the labor and all that apparently was still here in Gibeon. I was meaning to read this also in Second Chronicles. It gives us more insight here. It says, second, this is the first chapter. We're not going to be going beyond that. It says Second Chronicles. It says, Solomon, in verse 3, Solomon and the assembly with him went up to the high place, which is at Gibeon. And the tent of the meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought the ark of the Lord, uh, ark of God, from Kiriath Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he pitched a tent there in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out, and there we are. See, a little bit more inner. Inner, uh, a little more inner information there, but they were separated. So there they are in Gibeon. So Solomon loved the Lord. It says this in verse three. We already mentioned this and walked in the statutes of God of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings in high places. This is something that really that you read about throughout the kings. Now, they had lots of problems. They sought after other gods. But the fact is that. Why was this such a big deal? Why was it? I mean, if I mean, why is it a big deal today? Well, I can just worship the way I want to. Well, then what am I saying? Well, no, thank God, your order and the way you want things done doesn't matter. I'm just going to do things the way I want to. And so if you have all these high places all around, I can just go here. I can go here when I need to. I can go over there. But God de- designated in this time a particular spot. This is the way you need to enter. You need to go through the door. You need to pass through the altar. And then there's going to be a labor. And then not everybody can enter into the tabernacle. And not even that, not everybody can enter but once here, the high priest, into the innermost part of that tabernacle. There was a way. Does order and does 
does um, does that matter to God? Or can we just, just jump over the fence and do things the way we want to? Well, then he wouldn't be God. We would be God in making our own rules. And the high places and when everybody went to go and worship the way they wanted to, well, that was a problem. It was a problem. And a lot of the kings throughout their history had this, that they would worship out in the high places. And what it was was sneaking out another place. Well, you know, Jerusalem's just too far. I'm just going to go to Gibeon, or I'm going to go here. But God designated that they would be going to one place because that's where he would be dwelling. But they were offering um, in the high places. But the Lord still saw Solomon's heart, right? There was a problem that in we're not saying that order, you know, we should just throw it away and the way things that God wants, get rid of it. But um, in any case, Solomon was somebody that the Lord used. And the king, it says this, went to Gibeon and sacrificed there. And there was a great high place. Solomon used to offer used to to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Can you imagine that? It's a lot of animals. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and, and said, and God said, ask what I will give you. Now, this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time because this is where Solomon gets his wisdom. And I think in application wise, this is where we can spend a little bit to look at what Solomon's prayer is. We're going to come back to that, though. So in verse 10, it says this, I please the Lord that Solomon asked this. He asked for wisdom and God said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or life of your enemies. But you have asked yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, now, accordingly to your word, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you uh, have been before you and none shall rise like you after I will give also to you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. And and so that no other king shall compare to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father walk, then I will lengthen your days. And so God grants Solomon his request what he asked for wisdom. But he also adds to it. And this is just like our God. You know, you ask for something small and he gives you something that's much larger in scale and something you never even considered because he saw inside inside and he saw inside Samuel's uh, excuse me Solomon's heart but he adds a he adds interesting he adds something to it that he says well riches and honor are going to give you but long life he adds an attachment if you follow in my ways I will lengthen your days now he's not saying he's going to live forever now this is very significant because remember Back in 2 Samuel, there was a prophecy given to, or really, God also had a conversation with David. You know, David had in his mind, once he was established as king, listen, I'm going to build a, a house for the Lord. You know, when we call it Solomon's temple, while he was the one that built it, it really, the plans and the materials all came from David. It's really David's temple. Solomon was the one that actually built it. But all the plans and everything came from David. So David, one time, once he was established king in the beginning of Second Samuel, he wants to do this. And um, he counsels with his seer or his prophet at the time, which was Nathan. Nathan says, go ahead and go do it. Well, God comes to Nathan and says, no, you know what? Uh, you're going to go and tell David this. And he gives him a word. 
And what he told them was, he says, I'm trying to flush it out here. Here we go. And in chapter seven of second Samuel, but he tells them that, you know, and we're going to paraphrase some of this. He says, well, you wanted to build me a house, but you know what? I'm going to build your, you a house and your son is going to reign forever. So no doubt in Solomon's mind, you know, he had this in mind. Listen, my house is going to be established forever. David, this was something that was given to David. And on top of it, it says this, that that he's going to have peace around on all his sides. That all these things that the, the Lord was going to, to immediately promise came through Solomon. Now, the fulfillment of that, of that person who was going to reign forever. Well, who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus, right, of the house of David. But the immediate fulfillment came through Solomon. And then we have a story here in verse um, from 16 to 28. We're not I'm not going to go too much into it because I like to look back at his prayer or his conversation with God. But one of the first things that's recorded, and this is actually not in Second Chronicles, but after that prayer, after that conversation with God and God gives him a discerning mind, there's this um, as customary in that time, there was uh, no uh, local courts and no uh, acting judges. I guess the king heard these matters himself. Now, he might have had some that would. But there's two story. There's a story here. of These two prostitutes that come to for judgment and something happens that they didn't see. Only them two were the only eyewitnesses. Now, one's saying one story and the other one's saying something different. Well, you need to open up an investigation and you need to examine. Uh, maybe you got to observe them after the time. Now, can you make a judgment just but with that information that he gives you? No, one's saying one thing, the other one's saying nothing, or the other thing. And you have one child that's dead and one that's alive. So that's all you know. But you see that Sam... Uh, God uses this in, uh, story in Solomon's life to establish that what Solomon had was a gift from God. And he uses uh, the mother's affection for a child to bring out the truth of really who the, the child's father is, uh, mother is, excuse me. And he tells both women that, you know, bring out a sword. I'm going to cut the baby in half. You know, you both say one is the other one. And here you can both have a half and we can be done with it. But the woman whose baby that really was, you know, it, it drew out her own heart's, you know, and love for that child to say, no, you know what, don't kill and give him to the other woman. And Solomon used that as, as an indication that this was the woman's mother. And so as people were observing this, like, wow, he didn't even open up an investigation. He just made judgment right there. But really, Solomon had something that was a gift from God in, in, and and God used that to to permeate Solomon's reign, really, into really that was the beginning. And soon after that, you have people flowing in from different directions, asking for Solomon for advice. But let's go back to the prayer for a little bit. Hopefully we have enough time to look into this. But I think this is good. Just look, it says this really this is a conversation with God and prayer is where we talk to God. But God comes from this is interesting that God is the one that comes and asks the question. He didn't even calls my name. Not quite often does he come. He comes in different ways, but he just God comes to him in a dream. He says, ask what I will give you. Can you imagine that? You know, that's the type of God sometimes people want. 
They want somebody that can, you know, rub a, a magic lamp, you know, when I need something. And, well, here, I need something right now, or I have this problem here. Let me rub it, and I talk to you. Well, it doesn't say that Solomon did that. Solomon was just at the high place at that time, and he was offering. And out of his heart, just pouring out is his appreciation to God. And God comes and says, ask what I give you. And Solomon says this, you have shown great, this is verse 6, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he had walked in before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness and in his heart towards you. And you have kept him this great steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne. And the first thing I wanted to look at, too, we're going to look at contemporary of this is that it says here in Second Chronicles, we're going to be flipping back and forth in the night. Verse 7, 2 Chronicles 1, 7, in the night, Solomon, God appeared to Solomon and said, ask what I'll give you. Solomon said to him, to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and you have made me king in this place. Oh, Lord, uh, Lord, oh, Lord God, let the word to David, my father, now be fulfilled. So the first thing that he recognizes is that God was the one that was doing it, even though. Listen, he was already king. You think, well, what, what else does God have to fulfill? You know, why is he asking God to fulfill something? Well, there was more of that prophecy that David was, that was given to David. Peace around your sides. You know, hey, let me be that person that my throne is established forever. You know, let it, let, let, let it happen. And he understood that God, he recognized that God was the one that was going to enable those promises. He was calling on God to enable those promises in his reign. Back over to First Kings. It says, "You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David. And you walked before me in all my in in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness uh, of heart toward you. And you have kept him in this great steadfast love and have given him a son on on the throne this day. And now, O Lord God, you have made your servant king in place of, of David, my father." Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to come in and go out. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous, uh, too many to be numbered, counted for a multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And so really what I wanted to look at as a model is that in prayer, right? What a great prayer was to acknowledge who God was. God was the one who enabled and brought about Solomon being king. He knew it. And on top of it, he's calling God to, to listen, you gave these promises. Now you fulfill them. Back in Chronicles, we read that. But he recognizes too that he's, he's also his insignificant place in this whole role. He understood that, hey, I can't do anything without God enabling me without God being on my side. And that really is where Solomon's heart, we really see his heart in the beginning as one that sought after. It says that he sought after the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord in, in verse 3. Really, it was when Solomon's born, if you remember this, it's that, it says this particular. I mean, this is a very unique phrase. That's the Lord loves Solomon. It says that. Um, but in any case, in this, in, in, in this part of his life, it says that Solomon loved the Lord and he asked for a discerning mind. He wanted to be able to 
How do I interact with the people around me? How can I lead these people? You know, it's not that I need long life, not that I need wealth to pay off the debt or to to run the kingdom on some monetary needs. He says, no, give me a discerning mind to know what is good and evil so I can lead these people. And really, the, the history of Israel started with the king after this. Of course, the monarchy ended uh, when Nebuchadnezzar crushed them. But when the king was a good king, there was prosperity and the people sought after the Lord. But when the king sought after idols or disregarded the Lord is when there was a low point in their life and there was problems. There were people coming in, taking sections of, of, of cities and people out. And there was a lot of, and this is really all that God promised them. He says, listen, if you follow after me, this is what's going to happen. But if you don't, this is also going to happen. So Solomon, in the beginning of his life, asked for wisdom. But in just five minutes, just give me five more minutes, we'll, we'll finish with his wealth. And this is the, the second part of our our section is, is in chapter 4. If you look in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, and we're just going to read through and then we'll make some comments. And 4.22, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meat, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, fowl. and he had dominion over the region of west of the Euphrates and over Tisba to Gaza and over all the kings of the west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around them. And Judah and Israel lived in safely, safely from Dan even till Beersheba, every man under his vine and every under his fig tree in all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had four, 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for, the, for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table, uh, each one in his month. And they let nothing be lacking. Barley also was as straw uh, for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required and each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind like the sand that was on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed even the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Hermon, and Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Marmol. And his fame was in the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, of cedars, and that which is in Lebanon, and hyssop, and uh, that grows out of the wall. And he also spoke of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. So when I, when I came across this, this is going over his, his wealth and I made mention of it, but in, in, in Second Chronicles, it says that Solomon also would, it says this in Kings too, but later in his chapters, he would take horses, which were, you know, used for battle, used for transportation, but he would take them and he would 
from Egypt, he would buy them, but then he would turn them over and for profit, and he would sell them to the kings of the Hittites. So you see that things were flowing through Israel, through Jerusalem. There was peace on every side. And when you start reading this and the land and, and the abundance, and I've heard this said before, there's a likeness of the millennial kingdom here in a small way. You see that um, what was actually happening here and, and the abundance of 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 product as people were streaming in of the nations to hear the wisdom of the king as he was they were bringing gifts it says in other places to to Solomon it it often sounds like in a small way what the millennial kingdom's going to be like cuz everything's going to flow to Jerusalem just look at some comparisons here now i'm not going to stretch this you know so much cuz some of this you can you can really stretch it and say you know well you know, try to fit Solomon into a type of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Lord Jesus does talk about Solomon when in his own words, right? A greater than Solomon is here because Solomon was a beacon that, man, this guy is so wise that even had this queen from a far distant land came to hear his wisdom. Well, here's the Lord Jesus who's wiser than Solomon and they would not hear him. But looking at some of these likenesses of what the millennial kingdom and what's going to be established there in Israel and what Solomon's reign is characterizes politically the strongest here in chapter four. You look at also I'm just going to make reference of these since we're we're out of time. But Micah four one, you can look at as as Judah becomes the center point of the world. And, you know, this really flies in the face of some that say, well, we're, we're in the millennial reign right now is if you look at Israel right now, are they the center of the world? They're the center of attention right now. There's a lot of things going on and. You can't go without a day without reading about, you know, especially now about knife attacks and the things that are happening there. And as the world looks at it, it said, how can they be abusing those people over there? You know, those Palestinians there, you know, there's police brutality. Well, you know, they're the center of attention, but they're not the center of government of this world yet. They will be. But in this time, um, Judah and Israel, um, they had the surrounding nations bringing them tribute, right? They had do- dominance over them. Politically, they were the strongest. Nations were also submitted to the king of Israel. This happens in, in a couple of kings' lives, but in Solomon's time, it's the, it's the peak of it. In 21, in 421, it says, Solomon ruled over all the nations from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines. From the border of Egypt, he brought tribute, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, if you think of these these measurements, you say, well, you know, you don't really want to look up these and say, well, that's a big area. But if you look at what Abraham was actually promised, this is going way, way back, back uh, Solomon's forefather. But Abraham was promised a huge land. It's definitely many times bigger than what Israel's as a country is today. But Solomon, as a precursor, was given rule over this land. uh, But there were still foreign entities living there. Um, Also in four. 21, they were coming to entreat his favor. They were bringing him gifts. Um, they were bringing gifts to the king of Israel. It says this in, in uh, they brought tribute in 421. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Listen, this was person that was reigning over. We're going to bring tribute. Well, they're going to garner his favor. It says this in, in um, if you look at Zechariah 8, 20 to 23, but also Revelation that the nations, 21, the nations are going to bring gifts to the ruler who's in Jerusalem, which is going to be the Lord Jesus. But they're going to pay honor and bring tribute to that king. Peace and security, 
4.25, Judah and Israel lived in, in safety, even from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and everyone under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Peace and security all around. In the millennial reign, Ezekiel 34.28, Israel is going to live in peace and safety. There's going to be nobody to bother them. It says of Jerusalem that Jerusalem is going to be a city inhabited without walls. And so it's, it's kind of strange. I mean, we don't have walls today, but a wall was something of security. You needed that. It was essential to your safety. But Jerusalem now is going to be, in that time, going to be a city without walls. Is Jerusalem now without walls? Now they need a wall now, right, to keep up. They're in the midst of a of a hostile nations. But in the time of the millennial, Jerusalem is going to be established as peace and safety. In Solomon's time, in a small way, there was peace and safety. And then great fertility of the land. Isaiah 35 really talks about the whole landscape of that area is going to change. There's going to be rivers out of the desert. God's going to, when he comes down, there's going to be a total landscape change there. And you see that, that Solomon's bounty that he would take in. And one day it says this, provision for one day, 30 cores. I'm not sure how big a core is, but it seems like a lot. A core of fine flour, 30 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, all this abundance of, of, of food, abundance of, of the needs, that's going to be all there in the millennial reign. But in a small way, Solomon's kingdom really exemplifies what the millennial in an exponential way is going to be like. But I just put that out for consideration. So we're looking at Solomon's wealth and wisdom. So I think we'll just close in a word of prayer and then uh, we'll look forward to the next looking at his next part of his life, the building of the temple. I think that is next week. And the will of the Lord. And so let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. We just thank you for looking in your word. And though, Lord, it is a historical person figure and we can feel so distant from it. But we just look at some of these these things that were recorded. We know that they were recorded for our learning. Uh, some thousands of years later that we can learn something from Solomon, Lord. Even the same things that he sought after, his mind, Lord. Uh, we can get caught up in those things, Lord. We just pray that we learn and that you would teach us from your word, even from Solomon's life, Lord. In the Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.